Dotnet Rocks, episode 1005, with guest Troy Hunt. Recorded Friday, June 6th, 2014. Thank you very much. Welcome back to Dotnet Rocks. Carl and Richard, we're at NDC. Uh, still at NDC. Yes. We can't get out of here. No. I, I don't um, want to leave. It's great here. Yeah, it's great. This is our last day, and we're about to do the live show. Yep. And, uh, well, we're here with Troy Hunt. He's going to be talking to us in just a few minutes. But uh, you know the drill. Let's run the music, and there you go. Get to know a framework. Yeah. All right, buddy. What do you got? Uh, by the way, a local uh, Norwegian just came in and said, I, I have a bone to pick with you, Mr. Oh. Franklin. I want you to stop talking smack about the Better No Framework music. <laughs> it's your music! <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, will, I will stop. Yeah. You wrote it. You he sang it. He said it makes me happy. He says it gets in, it's it makes an a lot earworm. of people happy. It's an earworm. It gets in my brain when I go to work in the morning. Dude, dude, And please dude, stop disparaging dude, it. Dude. You haven't disparaged <laughs> it in a long time. Yeah, I haven't. Yeah. So let's do it now. <laughs> all right teach me friend so what do you got in honor of troy i, I went it. to uh i went to see if our are my own i can't say our because we're all from different countries aren't we yes we are uh i went to see if my own government has any kind of security uh current activity uh vulnerabilities page to see if you know they're keeping up with stuff turns out they do tinyurl.com slash USA cert. This goes, brings us to us-cert.gov slash NCAS slash current dash activity. And now that you've got URL on the brain, I'll give you that shortened one again. It's tinyurl.com slash USA cert. And this is the United States Computer Emergency Readiness Team. Okay. <laughs> I know. It's kind of funny, isn't it? I don't know why. Maybe because the NSA. I don't know. But, but the question uh, is, how ready are they? I don't know. Well, we'll see. So the U- U.S. CERT current activity webpage, this is right off the front of it, is a regularly updated summary of the most frequent high-impact types of security incidents currently being reported to the U.S. CERT. So it's basically a place where people report security breaches or you know advisories or... Uh, updates to libraries or whatever. Cool. So the last one there was from yesterday, as of this recording. It was OpenSSL releases security advisory. All right. OpenSSL has released updates patching six vulnerabilities which may allow an attacker to decrypt or modify traffic between a vulnerable client and server, cause a denial of service condition, or remotely execute arbitrary code. Awesome. Yeah. Well, that sounds like part of, part of that was Heartbleed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this was posted yesterday, however. So okay. this is a brand new vulnerability. Awesome. So they're still working. Yeah, they're still working. And I don't know if uh, hardcore.net rockers will remember this, but back in the day when um, uh, there was a bunch of, oh, how should we say, Microsoft was having some problems with security. Right? Yeah. And everybody was pointing to Microsoft as, as being, uh, you know, Windows as being insecure and stuff. And granted, there were problems, especially with the browser. But um, the attack surface was big because they were popular, right? Right. We made the point, um, and especially it was the, a lot of Linux zealots that were like, yeah. you know, our platform is great, and it's in, and it's not... Uh, it's not as vulnerable. Not as vulnerable. Microsoft and security. Exactly. So, so to counter that, we did a thing called the Linux Vulnerability of the Week. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> where we went up to where uh, vulnerabilities in the Linux kernel were posted, and they were always bad. Yep. And every week there was a new one. And it yeah. just sort of made the point that, you know, nobody's... We, we're nobody's all vulnerable, vulnerable. Yeah. and we're all trying to fix it. It's how well we fix it. And admittedly, from those days, Microsoft's gotten better. They really have. Yeah, they worked really hard well, on it. Well, and everybody keeps learning. That's the way it goes. Yep. Yeah. I agree. Cool right. one, dude. It's yeah, always so a good story. That's a good one. Maybe it'll... Uh, help spark some conversation later on with Troy, and we'll we'll see. For sure. Who's talking to us, my friend? I grabbed a comment off of show 914. That was done with one Troy Hunt. We were talking about how you should hack your own website. Good, fun show. And Tom Kiefer wrote a comment here. He said, the idea that you guys discussed of geofencing your device's Wi-Fi behavior. In other words, 
the manner of getting your mobile device's Wi-Fi antenna to only power up and ping for networks when it's in the region around that network. Yeah. You know, so you know sort of the area that it's supposed to be in. Right. It seems like that should be standard by now. It's certainly doable. For example, there's a third-party smart Wi-Fi app for the BlackBerry. Remember BlackBerry? Uh that does just this, although it uses nearby cell tower locations as an approximate geographic location because your cellular antenna generally has much less expense to the battery than GPS. Very true. Very true. I mean, that's the biggest problem with that whole geofencing thing is constantly checking your GPS data is hard on you. Yeah. Where, you know, using the cell data would be, would be cheaper if it's on. Uh, it's marketed as a battery saver, which it certainly is, but your security discussion concerning network spoofing seems like another strong argument for just this sort of a feature. And if someone was able to build an app like this for the BlackBerry, because building apps for the BlackBerry is hard, uh, it seems likely that someone must by now have done it for iOS, Android, and Windows Phone as well, although I haven't looked. Huh. Well, I looked around, and they're not there. No? <laughs> no, still hasn't been. Not as far as I can find, I've been able to find them. Is it that much of a problem still? I don't. I, it's a good question. We'll t- let's talk to Troy about it when we, uh, right. when we finish up here. Okay. Uh, thanks for the great discussion on security vulnerabilities and defenses, many of which are still poorly understood by most today and nice scare with the fire sheep example <laughs> i may never look at open wi-fi hotspots the same way again yeah yep me neither tom mm-hmm. scared all the time now it's because i hang around with troy and he freaks me out yeah right dude thanks so much for your comment that was awesome a donut rocks mug is on its way to you and if you'd like a donut rocks mug write a comment on the website at donutrocks.com or using any of our mobile apps because we've got them they're on android they're on windows phone they're on windows 8 and they're on ios and you can go, if you just go to the .NET Rocks site with your phone, it'll actually prompt you with a link. Or if you go to the regular .NET Rocks site, we have all the links in the top right-hand corner. There you go. And if we read your comment on the show, we'll send you a mug. By the way, those apps were built by Diatom Enterprises. We'd love to build you an app. Just go to diatomenterprises.com. And before we go any further, Pluralsight is home to the largest technology and creative training library on the planet. They have thousands of developer, IT, and creative courses authored by MVPs and industry experts releasing dozens of courses every month and offering a free 10-day trial. Pluralsight has a wide range of topics, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, pretty much anything and everything, Microsoft, lots of security content up there. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And that brings us to Troy. Troy Hunt is a software architect and a Microsoft MVP for developer security. Troy has spent the last 16 years or so building web applications. He blogs regularly about security principles and software development at TroyHunt.com and is the author of OWASP, Top 10 for .NET Developer Series. That's O-W-A-S-P. And recently, the free ebook of the same name. Well, last year, anyway. Troy is also the creator of AsafaWeb. A-S-A-F-A-W-E-B, the automated security analyzer for ASP.NET websites at asafaweb.com. Welcome back, Troy. G'day, guys. Nice to be here. Good to see you, man. Nice to have you here. Been fun hanging out this week. We've been having a good time in Norway. Been seeing the sights. We saw, saw the uh, the good weather day, yep. which was nice. Yeah. Was the day that tour. we had free, it was beautiful and sunny. That's the way I'm going to remember it. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that's the last happy moment you'll ever hear on this show. <laughs> so scare us, Troy. Let's move on to the scary stuff. <laughs> so, I was just thinking, you, you know, talking about the Wi-Fi hotspots, is it still a problem? So I'm doing a demo in a couple of hours, uh, and I'm, I'm doing the, the usual dog and pony show I do at the moment with how Wi-Fi is compromised so easily right. with this little pineapple device I use. And it's this little device that looks for... Uh, uh, people's phones probing for no networks right. and then it turns around and says on the network that you know and they get together and have a relationship. I, and, and I think this is the thing that people don't understand that when you put in remember this network into your phone or into your laptop, your device is actually yelling out on a regular basis, hey, I'm looking for this SSID and that's it's, what the pineapple exploits. That's it. It's probing. So I was setting up for this thing. I was doing a dry run this morning in the hotel. Uh, and I'm setting it up in the hotel, and then I was going through a presentation. I get to the bit where I show the devices that are connected, and someone, and I won't say their names, I don't want to embarrass them, but um, her name was just before the bit that says iPhone, it was you know, Blah's iPhone, right. had connected to GitHub Secret Wi-Fi, which was my pineapple. It was you. It's not secret just because you put secret in the word. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't work like that, guys. That's awesome. But the interesting thing is it means that that was an open Wi-Fi as well. Right. right. So, look, it could have been a home Wi-Fi. It could have actually been in a GitHub office somewhere. Right. But there's an open Wi-Fi called that, and her phone was just going around blasting it and 
jumped on the money. So, so just to just let's re, just rewind a little bit. This pineapple device, you're, it spoofs the device into thinking that it's the actual network that that you're trying to connect to. Right, so my phone is saying, "Hey, I'm looking for GitHub Secret Wi-Fi." You, Pineapple says, "I'm GitHub Secret Wi-Fi. Go ahead and connect to me." And then it what? It sends you its credentials, its it, well, Wi-Fi it passwords, and it connects. Well, so here's the thing: so it only works for networks that don't have any encryption. Okay, so not so even web. So it's got to be an open network, like the one that I'm connected to at the moment at the right. conference, and that you know hundreds of people around us are connected to. And the reality of it is that we all so have... no passwords? That's it, no passwords. All right. But actually, I mean, let's clarify that because the device still broadcasts the name of every SSID it's looking for, whether it was an encrypted connection or not. So it's still saying, you know, where's my home network has WPA2 right. and a strong password. My device is still blasting out that name. Right. And, and more importantly, once you're connected to that network, you're, send, you're going to your email, you're going to Facebook and sending your passwords and all of that stuff. Yeah, and here's the interesting bit, because to, to sort of bring it back around to a developer-centric context, you know, what's the goal here? What's the problem? Well, the thing is, once your traffic goes through a man in the middle, all you've got to save yourself is your transport layer protection. Right. So your SSL Which is why Facebook and, all, and Google and so forth are all HTTPS now all the time. That's correct. Those ones are. So what yeah. I'm going to do in my demo today is I go to a website, and this website has got a login form. And you look at the login form and you look at the URL and I say to everybody, does this look secure? And everybody says, well, no, it's not secure because there's no HTTPS in the address. Right. And then we look at the form action and the form action goes to HTTPS. So when the credentials are posted, they're going to be encrypted. And I say, okay, well, does that look secure? And everyone says, well, okay, yes, that's secure because everything is encrypted when before you it goes post. over the wire. Right, transport right. security. So what I do then is I use the pineapple and I use a little feature in there called DNS spoof. And DNS spoof can take a request to a domain and it can route it somewhere else. Now, when this website loads, one of the things it does is it embeds JavaScript on the page and it gets this JavaScript off a CDN over HTTP. Right. So all I do is say, when you make the request for that JavaScript from the CDN, instead of getting it from there, get the one that I've got here get the one from the device, and then it rewrites the DOM and changes the form post-action. So when you submit, you're submitting to another location altogether. So uh -oh. so you, gra you, you spoof, like, say, a J the jQuery CDN path. Easy to – everybody's got it. It's very well known. Yep. You just redirect it. You actually – your redirected site has jQuery in all its libraries, plus a couple extra libraries if you're yep. own. Yep, it could. It yeah. could. And mind you, you can request jQuery over HTTPS, and then that vector is gone, yep. right? So that bit is okay. But, of course, the other way I could have done it is the page itself, which embeds the login form, is HTTP. So I don't even have to embed something else. You could just say, when you request insecurewebsite.com, just find and replace content in the page. Right. And this sort of comes back to the point about SSL not just being about uh, encryption and confidentiality, but it's also about integrity. Right. So how can we be confident that the page hasn't been manipulated when yeah, it gets loaded? That we've the actually gotten the library we thought we were getting. Exactly. And it's not just the library as well. It's anything over HTTP. So right. it could just be a really, really easy way would have been just change the HTML. It's a little bit more interesting when we say, look, there's all these extra dependencies and we can sort of uh, interchange them with other things that we'd like to when it right. loads, when it's not HTTPS. So, so <laughs> we're all, all HTTP is now, you know, it's dangerous. So we're all connected here to one of these uh, no password networks. And yeah. yep. Should we be? <laughs> so yeah, I'm reticent to say no, and the reason I'm, I'm I'm reticent to say that we shouldn't be, simply because it is so practical. Right. You know, it is like honestly, I don't have a I don't have data roaming, you know, no. and I can't live without connectivity. Yeah. You know, we were wandering around the other day, and I didn't have any connectivity. I felt lost. <laughs> Where am I going? I don't yeah. even have a map. So I understand the the need for the convenience. I think the trick is we've got to realize the risk. Right. And particularly when there's no encryption on the network at all, it's not just that pineapple risk. It's the fact that the packets that are floating around on this network are not floating around encrypted. They could suffer from like a side channel attack where we can actually look at other packets that are moving around the network. So that was, you know, we mentioned FireSheep, which we talked about in the other show. That was the way FireSheep worked. You're on the network. Let's look for other HTTP requests that other people are making that are authenticated to Facebook. Right. Just by virtue of being on the same network with no encryption. Right.
Well, and you know, it's one thing when you're using a web browser on a phone or anything else, and you can see it, it's HTTPS, but when you're using an app, mm, you know yeah, it's making calls, yeah, yeah. you have no way of seeing whether or not that app is using transport security. Yeah, that's it, unless they put a picture of a padlock. That doesn't work, guys. <laughs> <laughs> you actually have to use a it. A bitmap of a padlock on a page doesn't mean HTTPS. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, look, you're right, Richard. The, the point about apps is that apps abstract away that transport layer. It is that much further out of view. Right. So it's that much further out of view for the consumer. The consumer can't inspect the certificate if they want to. A right. lot of people probably don't do that anyway, but they can't see HTTPS. They can't see sort of the great big green extended, uh, extended validation uh, certificate. If it's, a, if it's an EV site, they can't sort of use any of those verification mechanisms that we might often do. And the other thing is, for developers, it's that much further out of sight as well. So if you're developing and you're working on a team, it's that much harder to go, look, I'm just going to tamper with some parameters. I'm going to, you know, maybe just see if I can pull a record I shouldn't because it's that much further behind the app, right? right. It's abstracted away. So and i got to think there's some folks out there that says, you know, Pineapple's a pretty sophisticated piece of gear. Only certain people have it. Like that's uh, that. Oh, yeah. It's only for black hats. It's just not. It's not it can't be that common. Well, you got to be able to afford a hundred dollars. A hundred dollars, <laughs> holy man! <laughs> so there's that. Um, and, and look, I mean, the the guys that that sell at Hack Five, um, that they theoretically make it for penetration testers, and it's certainly right. used by a lot of penetration testers. But at the end of the day, it's a hundred dollars. You order it off the web. It arrives in the mail a couple of days later. Right. And you're up and you running. Want. And it's easy to use. You don't have to be some sort of Linux black hat guru to, to make the whole thing work. It's got a nice web GUI. You load it up in a browser. It's user-friendly. It's right. easy. Yeah, and it just gets back to you. You've got to put out the effort to actually secure your stuff. What side of uh, hacks are you seeing out there these days? Like what, what, what's scaring you? The pineapple is obviously an interesting one. Wi-Fi continues to be challenged. Well, look, I, th I think the one that probably is still the most impactful and the most prevalent is SQL injection. So we're still, still seeing... I mean, really, this is sort of a known oh, thing, man. It's been years. So last... XKCD made a comic about it. Yeah, I know. I'm wearing the shirt. You oh, you are actually oh, a little literally... Bobby table. A little Bobby, Bobby table tables. Shirt. You're wearing the Bobby table <laughs> shirt. I love uh, it. This is my speaking shirt. That's uh, great. <laughs> <laughs> so SQL injection is still extremely prevalent. Uh, just last year, iWASP released their 2013 edition of the iWASP Top 10. Number right. one spot, still SQL injection. It's been there for the last few versions, last you know, approximately decade. And it sticks up there in the number one spot for a few reasons. One of them is it is dead easy to find SQL injection risks. Really? In the talk I do today, one of the things I do is I go into Google and I do a search in URL dot ASP question mark ID equals. Yeah. So look for a classic ASP website that's got an ID parameter. First result, click on the link, we get a record loaded, which is what you'd expect. Yep. Go to the number in the URL, that ID number, and put something that's not numeric in there. Put an X. And right. suddenly it comes back and it says there is no column called 32X. Right. Because what's happening is this integer is being passed through just verbatim as it's being passed in the URL. Suddenly it's no longer an integer, it's a string. It's trying to actually match on a column rather than match on a string, and it's right. bubbling up an internal exception point is, it's just dead easy yeah. to find it. You, the system's just told you what to do next. Well, unless the system is, you know, checking to see if that parameter is numeric and, and only yeah, passing right. it if it is. You know, there's some checks that you can do. And then that's the whitelist approach, right? right? So that's, this is the data that we know to be good and this is what we expect. And clearly that doesn't happen. So the discoverability and the prevalence is really, really high. The second thing that really makes it such a, a big thing is that the, um, the ease of exploit is actually very, very simple. So in the demos that I do, I pull off a, a, a free tool off the web, a tool called Havage. It's got a little carrot icon. It's used for, um, it, it doesn't work over radio, but I'm doing quotes here, penetration testing. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> so is Havage like Savage, but with an H? It's H-A-V-I-J. Okay. So I've written a few things about it. In fact, I wrote a blog post where I teach my three-year-old how to use it because it's that easy. <laughs> um, it, is, it is crazy. And it's, it's that easy that what it does is you go and find a URL like the one we just mentioned, a right. .asp question mark. You copy that URL. You open up Havage. It's a nice GUI. You put it in the URL. You put it in the little address bar there they've got in Havage, and you click Go. And it comes back and it says, these are all the tables in the database. <laughs> you go, what? 
And then it says, well, which table would you like the data from? And you tick a little box and it says, well, these are all the columns in that table. Which, ta uh, which columns would you like? And you tick a couple of columns, you know, username, password, and then you go get data and it goes, ooh, here you go, all your data. Wow. Great demo material. So that was the second thing. The ease of exploit is so easy. But the third thing about SQL injection is that the impact is so high. You know, this is internal data leakage. Right. This is the thing you stuff you weren't willing to put in the cloud because it was so important to the company. That's it. So you just expose it through your own website instead. That's it. And, you know, it's more than just exposing it. It's a SQL injection risk. There's every chance that you can write to it as well. Yeah. So when we see these attacks online and we see, you know, something like Adobe and there's 152 million records leaked online, you know, hacktivists particularly love to put this stuff on Pastebin. Often it's just someone running this tool, copy, paste, get me the data, and then I might just blitz the database as well. Right. Well, I'm at it. So, yeah, the only copy now is sitting in Pastebin for everybody to see because I dropped the tables. <laughs> well, at least you got a backup. <laughs> yeah, you'd hope. <laughs> you all on Pastebin. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's a backup. Mm. That's amazing. And you've seen exploits like this in the wild? Yeah. In fact, the uh, the talk I did here a couple of days ago was talking about Bell in Canada from mm -hmm. uh, a couple of months ago. It's a sort um, of East Coast telco provider in Canada. Yeah, right. And and it was uh, pretty much exactly what I just explained. It's a classic ASP uh, with a parameter that was injectable. And it was attacked by hacktivists. And hacktivists really like to tell everyone how they've done it. Right. You know, they like the boasting. So I've got screen grabs of after they hacked it, they've said, here's the tools I've used. And they used a, a tool called Hackbar, plug into Firefox. Right. So they've just gone, give me an easy tool that allows me to manipulate some parameters and see if I can break it. Um, and it's done. It's that easy. Wow. And so they, and they did the same thing? They dumped the whole database? Yeah, yeah. Dumped it, 22,000 plus records. Uh, no cryptographic storage for credentials. Oh, no. So, so username and passwords were in the database? Plain text. So it wasn't even bad hashing. It was no hashing. It was no hashing it was plain at text. So that's a problem. And, you know, the other interesting thing as well, when we see hacktivists in particular finally get caught by the law, and a lot of them do. Right. Often they're turning up to court with their mums. Right. Because they're, they're like 17 years old. Yeah. You know, 18 years old. They're kids that have got time and curiosity and probably uh, not a healthy respect for the law, and it's so easy, they just go, you know, let me go and get this. Yeah. So but, and it... And doesn't matter that they get busted. You still out. You still have Bell dealing with a whole bunch of their customers being data published. That's it. The data's out there, and of course, the reality of it is the customers have reused the passwords too, right? Right. So of what course. happens next? So, you know, there is examples like uh, after Gizmodo was hacked a few years ago. After Gorka, sorry, was hacked a few years ago. Right. We saw a lot of uh, uh, spam on Twitter for Sahi berries. So what was happening was the attackers had dumped the passwords and they're then using those plain text passwords from Gorka, logging into people's accounts on Twitter because they've reused the accounts and obviously exploiting those Twitter accounts in order to send spam. Right. So it kind of pops from one account to the yeah. other. Well, there, you know, that's the trap, right? Is folks keep reusing passwords everywhere. Said, what are you doing for passwords, dude? I'm doing password managers. So I'm very fond of one password. One password, yeah. Last password's good. Key pass is good. I'm sort of of the view that if we all agree that unique passwords that are strong, i.e. they're long and they're random, are important, you can't kind of have all of those factors and remember them. Right. You know, you can't have strength and randomness across your whole breadth of accounts. Yeah. So I use one password. I've got a whole heap of passwords in there that are all as random and as long. Well, you don't as even know what they are, are, right? I don't one know. About, I don't care about that. I can get them back out with my master password. And then there's just a few things that I have to remember. So things like my Apple password. Right. Imagine every time you bought an app, you had to somehow go and get a 30-character crazy password right. and put it in. So you can't do it everywhere, but you can do it for the vast majority of stuff. Yeah, the stuff that's more likely to be exploited, you know, like your telephone company. <laughs> <laughs> like them. <laughs> uh, any other favorites? The SQL injection ones are great because it's just so devastating when they happen. SQL injection's good. I think the other one that's really interesting is, is the social engineering type attacks where you have attackers speaking to people that manage these systems. So one of the really interesting ones was a couple of months ago, there was this case of the, of the Twitter at N account being stolen. So at a guy, N? Yeah, so a guy had a Twitter account. It's just the letter N. Single one character. Yeah. Single ah. So extremely valuable. He said it was worth 50 grand. People wanted to pay fifty grand just for this Twitter ad in account because it's one character right. and it gets more characters for. That's stuff. it. So apparently, what had happened, 
the way the attacker ended up getting his hands on the account is the attacker actually compromised his GoDaddy account and held his GoDaddy accounts for ransom, said, give me the Twitter account, otherwise we're going to blitz all your domains and all your, all your data. Hmm. And the way he got into GoDaddy was the attacker had uh, allegedly, and we haven't seen how he's done this, but allegedly socially engineered out of PayPal the last four digits of the guy's credit card. Okay. Now, how he did that with PayPal, we don't know, but there are other examples where other organizations have easily been socially engineered to get those credit cards. Um, so there's one here, there's a bloke called Matt Honan, a few years ago, had his Apple accounts uh, taken over and all these devices wiped. And the way the attackers got the last four digits of the credit card is they called up Amazon and said, uh, look, I've, uh, I need to put another card on my account. And they went through sort of a verification process with the guy. And they said, okay, in order to do that, we need your name, your email address, and your billing address. Now, that's easy to figure out, right. but all they let him do was put a card on the account. So the attacker puts some random card on the account. Attacker calls back the next day and says, look, I've forgotten my password. I need to reset it. All right, so that's actually a more destructive sort of process. Right, right? And, a, and so a higher level of validation. Right. So Amazon says, okay, well, what we need is we need your name, your address, and the last four digits of your credit card. And the guy goes, well, I gave you one yesterday. Let me use this. Right. <laughs> so he's actually engineered Amazon to get this, this credit card. So he's not social engineering the mark. He's social engineering Amazon to That's get it. to the mark. So the way this all comes back, going back to the guy with his Twitter ad ed account. So the attacker gets those last four digits. And, you know, whether it's via the Amazon way or some mechanism via PayPal, we don't know. It's not too hard to get four digits of a credit card. Attacker calls up GoDaddy and says, look, I need to do a password reset. And GoDaddy says, all right, but we need the last six digits of your credit card. And the guy goes, well, I've only got the last four. So GoDaddy says, well, do you want to just guess the first one? <laughs> so he goes, ah, one, no, two, no, three. Yeah, yeah, okay, so three, all right, what about the other? So they let him keep guessing until he got it right. Wow. So he, that I mean, is wouldn't, fascinating. How can you, how can you, <laughs> I, I'm speechless. <laughs> So this actually asking for six is good. Yeah, but right. then you undermine it. There's like no, if the guy, how can he, how can anybody say, "Oh, I only have the last four, and that's acceptable? He's actually brute forced the human, right? Yeah, so he's just kept so, going until he got it right. Like, isn't that got to be an immediate flag? Like you either have all of them or none of them. Yeah, we don't yeah. ask for them all because it creates another issue. Yeah, but the fact exactly. that he would say, "Well, I only have four, Yeah, it's just sort of a hint. Yeah, I, yeah. you shouldn't talk to me. So anyway, that, that was sort of unfortunate, and uh, this was one of the ones I talked about a couple of days ago in the presentation here, but you know, you sort of follow the, the, the pattern of practices through. So I showed that at the moment, GoDaddy, you log on to GoDaddy, and you're still not seeing SSL in the address bar. Right. It posts to HTTPS, but we've just had this discussion. Right. right? We already know what the vulnerability is. So that doesn't so. work. So then I show another bit where, look, with uh, GoDaddy, you can turn on two-factor authentication. Right. If you're American. Now, what is oh, what kind of authentication? Two-factor authentication. Oh, okay. So this is two, two things to identify yourself? Yeah, right. So this is where we're normally saying, okay, your first factor is what you know, which is your password. Your second factor is something that you have, which is usually either the authenticator app, uh, such as Google Authenticator on your phone, or you're able to receive an SMS. With a and then we send a code to the SMS. Correct. But unfortunately, as of the moment... GoDaddy says that we can only do that for the US. So I assume they're just doing SMS. They don't want to send SMSs to other countries. Right, it's expensive for them. Well, they're not equipped to do it. Yeah, there's probably reasons, but unfortunately, you've got this really critical thing that's yes. being protected, which is your domains. Yeah. So that's unfortunate. I like multi-factor authentication, but you're right. It has to work everywhere. Yeah, look, I like it. And it's, it's on so many things now. So, so many of the examples that I talked about with previous attacks... Uh, so everything from Twitter to Gmail um, through to some of the domain registrars as well. So many of these now have two-factor. Right. Um, GitHub has two-factor. Yep. Yeah, GitHub had a lot of brute force attempts against it, uh, I think only about 16 months ago, or six months ago. Hmm. Um, and two-factor solves that, right? You've got to have that authenticator. Right. I, I, I mean, it's one, it's one thing about the authenticator, but just the notifier. Like in the, the Twitter N attack, the fact that, there was somebody called Amazon and the actual customer was never notified. Like I like that whole, just a separate notification stream. Hey, thanks for your call. Mm. This is the changes we made. Yeah. Yeah. Some of them do that. And then it's a question of, um, is the customer going to get it and pay attention to it? So there's quite yep. a few examples where the customer gets it and it's just noise, right? Yeah. Well, I and ignore they... all emails from PayPal <laughs> because none of them are from PayPal. That's I got right, one from yeah. PayPal this week and they said, 
in order to unlock your account, all you got to do is just open this attached HTML document. Oh, no. I don't, yeah, yeah, sure. I don't think so. I don't sure. even look at emails from PayPal. Sure, no it's problem. just no point. They're all exploits. Yeah, yeah <clears> it's all junk. Yeah, so I mean, that's an interesting, but I like the notification email. Just So at least you're on another channel. Yeah, yeah. No, know? that's that's true. That's valuable. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Know what time it is now? Uh, must be that happy time again. You got it. It's time to announce proudly that Havage was not able to penetrate .netrocks.com. <laughs> oh, you tried it. I did. <laughs> of course, Here I, I thought you were writing the joke while Croy and I are chatting, and you were actually I, pen I, testing. I was writing the joke, so you were actually. Really by pen testing your site. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, it says, I, I don't know what to do here. <laughs> well, good. We like that a lot. Um, first of all, it didn't, didn't recognize, uh, doesn't, SQL Server is not in its list of databases. Oh, I can definitely do SQL Server. Yeah, right. It's not in the list. In fact, so it's, it's in the fact, free version anyway. Yeah. Maybe Sybase? Uh, no, I can definitely do it. And in fact, in my demo today, I'm going to do it against SQL Azure. Okay. Ooh, well, cool. in in the list of databases, the I it's I said auto detect, but it thought it was a MySQL database and I looked at the drop-down list, all sorts of MySQL, Postgres, Microsoft Access, and uh, Sybase, but no SQL Server in the list. Guaranteed. That was it'll the do free it. version. It'll all right. Well, we'll figure <laughs> the free that out one will some do it. time. Let's give away some swag, dude. Yeah, let's give away some swag. It's time to give away a Component 1 Studio Enterprise to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who the winner is, let's talk about Component 1 Studio Enterprise. .NET controls for professional developers. Whether you're building the most modern touch-enabled apps or maintaining and updating legacy applications, their flagship product, Studio Enterprise, helps to deliver rich, responsive desktop and web apps on time and under budget. Component one, Grape City, of course. Before yeah, that, Data, data Dynamics. Before that. You know, been yeah. been with us for a long, long time. Long time. And they're still here. They're still doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So today's winner is Brent Gaither. Congratulations, Brent. And Brent just won a Component One Studio Enterprise. Great big honking library from Component One. Awesome. And uh, if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button. Answer a few questions and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we give away great sponsor stuff like this. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member picked at random right. of the .NET Rocks fan club. And, Troy, we like to ask our guests, if you had five grand to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Oh, man, I didn't prepare for this one. Last time, I wanted to add GoFast bits to the car. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> it's always a good thing. Did you say add go fast bits to the car? Yeah, yeah. that's like speed up your car. Somehow. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, oh, you, yeah. Already, you already drive a GTR, dude. It's not a whole lot faster. It needs to go. Oh, Richard, don't say that. <laughs> there's <laughs> there's, there's, what there's never thing? too much power. That's, so, yeah, they they call that car Godzilla. Yeah, yeah, for good reason. <laughs> um, so yeah, I guess I'd better do something different with it. Um, you know what? Everyone says 4K screens. Now I kind of like the idea of 4K screens, but I don't think 5K goes far if you want to have a whole heap of them, does mm -hmm. it? No, no. I think it'll get you one and a half of them, more yeah. or less. There's a few low-cost 4K screens, but I don't think they're very good yet. Yeah, right. It's a sub-$1,000 4K, so you could get five of them, but then what are you, you going to drive it with? Yeah, so, well, that's the other challenge, right? How much you got to spend on GPU hardware just yeah. to get that thing? To well, wasn't it you who said that Sony's coming out with a library of stuff that you can only watch on a 4K Sony on a Sony 4K TV? screen? Yeah, oh, TV? Man. Yeah. that's that they're doing no, that. That's, not that the, that's on the television side, and then Samsung responded by doing the same, the same thing. exact yeah. thing. Yeah. It's yeah. like you have to watch it on a Samsung TV, but I guess, I, you know that's the only way you can sell content. Yeah, but we've been down this path how many times? Yeah, you know? it's like so. It's you crazy. guys don't. So it turns out you guys didn't want to sell this product. Actually, Act, yeah. after all, right. look, I, but, I don't know. I'd probably put it into a, a shiny new laptop and a beefier desktop. I mean, that's the stuff that I use all day, every day. And you, you know, would, every time we've given away the package, that's exactly what people you, actually. Troy, want. you wouldn't want to buy a bank vault. <laughs> 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 How much money do you think I have? <laughs> I, I don't mean for money. Just you know, for you know, just to hang out in. I don't know. And just, <laughs> Keep, keep your stuff in there. Yeah, if you I don't ship know. it to me. Oh, <laughs> man. Yeah, I can't love to see the bill and the shipping. Good luck with that. that. Yeah. It's going to be more than 5K. Oh, yeah. man. It wouldn't come on a UPS truck. I know that. <sighs> but shiny new computer equipment is always a safe bet. Folks like it. Yep. I mean, yeah. And we can always put it to work. That's what we live with, right? Sure. And it's not a lot in security now that I think stressing computer equipment substantially. Like it's, 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 uh, the way I describe it, doing web performance stuff, when folks are talk we're talking about like running HTTPS everywhere. It's like, look, for the most part, the CPUs on web servers are smoking cigarettes and playing cards. They got yeah. nothing to do. 
Let yeah. them encrypt some packets. It's okay. Yeah, that's it. And there has been this sort of historical view that, hey, SSL is going to have a performance hit. Um, and, you know, that's tr- got to be true to some extent, yes. right? You're still encrypting data. You're still decrypting data. You've got a little bit more network latency. But it's a question of degrees. So when Google started going all SSL only for Gmail, they released a lot of info detailing what they saw in their in What their, their additional overheads were. And mm. they were seeing something in the order of less than 1% additional wow. overhead on the CPU. So barely wow. measurable. Barely measurable. Mm. Yeah, barely that's measurable. what I figured. It's just that I know CPU is not the pacing item. In, in large-scale websites, yeah. We've, CPUs haven't got much to do. So it's still not going to be the pacing item when you add a little more load to it. That's it. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to look at the different hosting options and where SSL fits in in terms of, of cost as well. Because, I mean, if you go and get something like a standard Azure website, you've got six SSL certificates for free in there. Right. You know, you've got five SNL, one IP-based. They're just giving the stuff away for free. You can go along to startssl.com, get yourself a free certificate, Put it on a standard website. Jeez, put six of them on a standard website, and it just still doesn't cost you a cent. What does six of them do for you? Well, you might have six sites. Okay. So, so if you go to Azure and say, I want a standard website, that's the model where you can get up to 500 websites on right. your one VM. So you can put a lot of stuff on there, including SSL, for very little cost. Right. You know, um, there was a guy here, we were talking about this before the show started, there was a guy here who did a talk about some of the JavaScript frameworks and how insecure they are. And specifically, you know, you were talking about SQL injection attacks being the most prevalent. How about Node.js JavaScript injection attacks? Oh, yeah. yeah, I saw that talk. That was really cool. And he was talking about uh, posting basically a while loop, yeah. while true. Yeah. And it, he was posting it to a, a, a node process that was single-threaded, and it just sit there and went round and round and round and round and round, 100% CPU. The machine just ever. goes, boop, you're gone. That was cool. Took it out. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Whole other, whole other level of exploit. That's, yeah, that's a whole nut. You know, hey, run this. Yeah. Yeah. Dope. Yeah, the ability to project running. There's been lots of problems with SSL. Like the, the whole intermediary mm. certificate authorities yeah. and that debacle. Like, are you pretty careful about where you get your certs from? Well, I mean, the, I guess the biggie in terms of certificate authority debacles was DigiNodar. Yeah. So a few years ago, DigiNodar, Dutch certificate authority, uh, got owned pretty seriously. Looks like the attackers predominantly created certificates for things like Google. And I think they created wildcard certificates for Google. Predominantly used them in Iran as well, apparently. Wow. Oh. And they know they were used in Iran because when they went through and did the sort of forensics on DigiNota after the whole debacle, they saw all these certificate revocation requests for Google coming from Iran. And DigiNota was not the certificate authority for Google, so why is it getting certificate revocation checks? They and why that was coming from Iran? Didn't they figure that was going to happen? You know, like the evidence is going to show up. Well, this is the thing, though, but it doesn't matter if it shows up days, weeks, months after they've already managed that. to intercept the traffic. So, of course, for something like that to work, you still have to own the connection, right? You still right. have to get a man in the middle. Um, and if it's hundreds of thousands of people in Iran, they're probably not using pineapples, but it might be the government owns the ISP, right. at the ISP level, they're getting in the middle of the traffic. We've seen this happen in Tunisia. The Tunisian government did it to Facebook a few years ago. So we've seen that happen, but when they compromise the CA and they can serve up a valid certificate and you still get padlocks and green bars and everything, right. yeah, that's a serious issue. But, and it's governments doing it. I mean, it has to be people that are controlling the primary gateways of a given country if they want to be that thorough. Well, to do it that comprehensively. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, the the funny thing is, since we would have spoken last time, our view of what governments are doing and who we are suspicious of has changed completely. You know, and that that brings up another point. I mean, look at a guy like Snowden. That could could have been prevented not with technology, but just by better policies and better security, physical security, right? You know, just on-prem security. And and that, it it reminds me of another thing that happened in the uh, early, late 90s, early 2000s. I can't remember when it was, but uh, one of the, somebody called up VeriSign, which was the certificate authority of of the time, and said they were from Microsoft and they had forgotten their certificate and could you please just email it to me? (laughs) <laughs> you know, and so the the browser certificate yeah. basically that allows you know always anyone who says always trust websites from Microsoft or software from Microsoft they yeah. they, they just had it. Is social engineering again? Yeah, yeah. social engineering. Social exactly. engineering so of tech support. People. Sometimes security doesn't have anything to do with technology. Sometimes it's just about yeah. who but, do you trust and and what kind of controls do you have at a at a personal level. 
I guess it's a combination of factors too. I mean, okay, a, a human was compromised at the target, right? but there's also the question of how much access to information the human should have and what sort of processes they should go through. So right. should someone at VeriSign have been able to get the certificate and fire it off via email to someone who phoned right. up? You know, probably not. No, and, and I'm sure that story's been used as a sort of uh, a, a warning for, yeah. you know, in the security business for many years. Absolutely. Yeah, how you do, how you pass that information around? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It's um, it's well, the idea you put a private key into an email, which is an unsecured. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This anyway. is the thing, and we, look, honestly, we still send so much stuff via email, open text, um, insecurely. But it, you know, the the funny thing is, it's not just email as well. One of the things I've got in my talk today uh, here in Norway, if you go into an IKEA and you want to buy a kitchen. They give you a form to fill out, a paper form, and you tick the sink and the taps and all that sort of thing. Right. And then they ask you to create an account by writing the username and password you want on the form. What? And then you, I kid you not, I've got the screen grabber. They hand it to the guy at the desk, the minimum wage bloke who then fills in the website somewhere with the username and password and email address, which is probably going to be the same password as your Gmail. Sure. Which you've just given him as well. Yep. Why don't you just write down the credit card number, too, while you're at it? <laughs> well, I mean, often we do that, don't we, yeah, when we actually sure. purchase things. Difference is your credit card gets owned, the bank gives you the money back, yes, fraud detection, the, it all gets sorted the out. The vendor is the one exposed. Right, Someone gets customer. your email, and they've got your skeleton key. Yeah. To now this thing's on a piece else. of paper. Yeah. That's it. And yeah. even if it isn't the kid behind the counter, he then throws that into a trash bin. Yep. Dumpster diving. And the dumpster diver pulls it up. I did very well dumpster diving <laughs> 30 years ago. <laughs> Going through the telco dumpsters. Really? and. Hold, I can't tell you the stuff I found. I got in. <laughs> I got into a burrow system. This is circa 1982-83 on a dial-up modem using the username Boeing and the password Boeing. You know, like just, uh. some guys listening right now. Hey, that was me. <laughs> that was my account. What are you doing? I'm gonna get that guy. Uh, <laughs> oh man, yeah, it, it just keeps going like that. So these we uh, talked about transport security everywhere, and we talked about SQL ingestion continuing to be a problem. You want to pull out another one? Yeah, so here's another one that's, that's interesting, and it, it combines a couple of different things we're seeing uh, in, in attacks of late. Um, so we have this situation in Australia just last week where there are a whole lot of people getting woken up about 2 a.m. in the morning with their iPhones absolutely going nuts. And they'd get up and they'd pick up the iPhone, and on the iPhone it would say, Hacked by Oleg Pliss. For unlocked device, you need send voucher code. But I can't do the accent, but no, assumably yeah, yeah. Oleg Pliss is somewhere in the Eastern Bloc. Okay. But basically, he's saying you need to send a hundred bucks if you want me to unlock your phone, and you could send the hundred bucks via MoneyPack or UCash or some of these obscure sort of uh, right. harder to trace payment methods. Right. So basically, what seems to have been happening is this guy is getting Apple accounts logging into iCloud remotely locking the device, he's putting it into lost mode, so right. using the, the sort of um, find my phone feature, remotely locking the device, sending the message, and then hitting the button to play sound. And then it doesn't matter whether it's on mute or whether it's volumes turned down because this is the thing that you're meant to use when you yeah. lose your phone. Yeah. Right, so you right? find it. But he's exploiting that. And the interesting thing about it all is it appears to have impacted hundreds of Aussies last week, almost exclusively Aussies. Wow. Now, this is a global iCloud service. Right. So it begs the question, where's the guy getting credentials and things from? Sure. Is there a vulnerability with Apple or is he getting them from some breached Sydney server or something? I would oh. wonder if it's actually he's got a payment system that works in Australia. Because yeah. that's the biggest weakness for him is getting the money. Right. Right. Yeah, but by the same token, what's it costing to do it? You know, he's got to look at something that's going to be as as um as hard to trace as possible. Right. Yeah. But anyway, we've uh, to date, and I guess we're about a week and a half in, no one's actually figured out how this has happened. And, and all Apple has said, they've been rather dismissive. They've just sort of said, look, people should choose good passwords. And they're probably right. But the, the two things that are kind of interesting about that is, number one, this concept of ransomware. Holding yeah. devices or holding data Rans. for ransom. So often we see it in things like uh, there's a piece of malware called CryptoLocker. Okay, you get this on your PC because you've been fished or you've gone to a malicious website and your Java's out of date and all that sort of thing. Encrypts all your files and says, all right, send money, otherwise you don't get your files back. Yep. And this has been going around for a few years. But to see it happen like this, where the actual physical device is sort of had to held to ransom, but it also only works if people don't have a PIN 
on their device because you can only set a pin via iCloud if the device doesn't already have it. Ah, right. Once you set a pin via iCloud, you can't unset it. The only way you can unlock it is you've got to know what the pin is. Right. Or you've got to blitz the device and restore from a backup. Right. Uh. So it only worked for people that A, didn't have a pin. B, they probably had bad iTunes uh, credentials or Apple credentials. Right. They probably reused them. And C, they almost certainly had no two-factor authentication. Right. So you had to sort of fail at a series of different things. And I understand it because for consumers, it's tricky, right? It's yeah. hard. Get your head around all this. But because of that, we are where we are. Yeah, and how much responsibility can it? Yeah, you said the only thing Apple can say is use better passwords. Well, yeah, but by the same token, how many devices can be locked with a ransom message before they go? Hey, there's a lot of devices being ma- uh, locked with the same ransom message. Right. You know, or f- okay, they may not know it's a ransom message in any automated sort of fashion. No, but, but it's like the, it could be some code they could end on the back end for mm-hmm. the locking. Same mechanism. string. Yeah. Happening time after time after time, even if it's from different IP addresses. Right. Mm-hmm. You'd think that there might be a fraud detection process yeah. in there somewhere. And yeah, actually, the goal here is go find the guy. You want yeah. to stop the yeah. messages, make it not profitable. Right. But the odd thing as well is that Apple is so invested in the overall user experience of their devices and everything being slick and smooth and easy, even to the point of obviously. Of insecure. Um, yeah, well, to the point of making it hard to do a lot of things that people would like to do. But, you know, their bigger picture is to try and make it a nice, cohesive experience. So for something like this to be so easy, right? you know, that's a bit inconsistent. Yeah, it's interesting. I, well, I think, you know, from a developer's perspective, you've got to have that look of how do I not make this exploitable? How do I not make this a channel of vulnerability for, the, for my customer's data? Yeah, and I think the interesting question there is that given we know people reuse credentials, what defenses do you have in your system such that when someone comes in with the correct credentials, we're not letting attackers do things that they shouldn't be able to do? Because it right. could be the attacker who has those credentials. Yeah. So are you saying that the that a developer let that happen? I think a developer can help fight it. Yeah, that's that's the point. So what we're saying is as a developer, you know, what defenses are you going to add such that if an attacker has a user's username and password, there there is something you can do about it. Right. So, you know, again, two-factor authentication mm-hmm. um, is one of them. Yeah, notifications, like these are all things that will help disrupt the chain. Yeah, yeah that's it. So it, and a very good point, Richard. Notifications to email right. addresses. You've right. just done something that has a changing effect. Right. You know, it's probably you and you're probably getting something you know already, but... Yeah. No, you know, I'm getting emails every time I log in to uh, my on my phone onto the Wi-Fi here at NDC. I get an email from Microsoft saying, "Hey, you just logged in from Norway. Yep. If that's okay for you, just delete this message. If it's not, here's actions you could take." It's, it's not hard, is it? No, it's not, and it actually makes you feel good, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's most of the time security is an annoyance, but if, when it's done right, it's like it's a confidence builder. It's like, yeah, that's oh, okay, it. Oh, okay, they're right? watching. That's it. And again, it's, it's, it's just a, such a simple thing. Send an email. Like, how hard is that? We can yeah. all do this, right? Right. Yeah. And then you know when to kick into action, right? I and like it, the thing that Microsoft's been doing lately when you go to sign in a, on a new computer or something, they send a text. Yep. Yeah. That's yeah. The, all the, you the multi-factor. Do enter the code yeah. Yeah, from the text. It. I use that too. And, and to be honest, sometimes it's frustrating. So I have yeah. to keep signing back into Visual Studio. Uh, you know, and maybe it's like every few weeks or something, but you got to get the thing out, do the code again. But, oh, man, I would hate to have my Microsoft account owned. You know, that has my email oh, yeah. account. It's got your MSDN, MSDN stuff. It can have a bunch of your Azure stuff. There like, is, yeah, that, well, that's exactly I right. I think it's there is everything. an option that says, you know, I, I sign in a lot on this computer. Don't ask me for another code. Yeah, it yeah. yeah. doesn't work in Visual Studio, though, oh, when you have to keep Studio. re-authenticating for yeah. licensing. Yeah. Oh, but, well. Maybe. It's got the box, but it doesn't work. <laughs> you can check it, but you're still going to get asked again. Yeah, that's that's. You talk about accounts you really don't want hacked. Oh man, your live yeah. account. You know that yeah. Microsoft account. That's an important account for a developer, anyway. Yeah, yeah and it's uh, this. Uh, I guess is the other thing, and Apple's a good example of that too, where we have so much now behind the one account. I sign into the device I have in front of me, which is my Surface with my Microsoft account. Right. It runs my Azure websites. It has yeah. 15 years worth of email in my Hotmail sure. account. There. Yeah. Well, how much have we been fighting to try and solve the single sign-on problem, and now it feels like I don't want to solve it? Well, that is the solution. It's so isn't convenient. It? Yeah, <laughs> you know, <It's> so, <laughs> it seems convenient, and yet it's a, it represents a massive vulnerability. Now you have one point. If you were really working and living in a single sign-on world, you have one. Po- we'd best have to break one thing, and we've got you. Yeah. Do you think there'll ever be a day where somebody just 
find, uh, hacks into Gmail or something like that or Hotmail and takes everybody's email history that, you know, that has ever been written and yeah, posts yeah. it for free on the internet. Good luck with the bandwidth, but yeah, yeah. 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 it um, may take a while. But I yeah. gotta think the safest, it's the biggest guys that are doing this the best. Mm. Well, you know, we say that, but what was it about two weeks ago, eBay? You know, 145 million active accounts. Yeah. They haven't told you how many in- inactive accounts. Yeah. 145 million active accounts. Now, they weren't on Pastebin, so that's something positive, I guess. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you'd expect these guys. eBay should be one of them. Right. Yeah. They should be getting it right. Oh, wow. Troy, it's always so much fun talking to you. Yeah. <laughs> like always I said, that, that first thing was... Uh, <laughs> that was the good news. It's get ready for the, the bad news. The talk about your trips and the sunny day. Yeah, that was the last <laughs> happy thought. Yeah. So... Run some of these pen test tools and actually make sure these simple vulnerabilities are dealt with. Yeah, and look, I, I to me, it keeps coming back to developers understanding the risks. Right. right? It's yeah. very hard to build defensive software if you don't understand how to exploit it. Sure. And that's why last time we talked about things like the Pluralsight course of Hack Yourself First. Yeah. So how can we help developers experience this? So just in that tiny little space before, Carl was able to download Havage, run it against the site, and actually see what happens. You know, let's do stuff like sure. this. Let's try and break our own stuff. Learn how to break it, and then learn how to secure it. Yeah, I mean, at least beat back the script kitties by being a script kitty. Yeah, and uh, honestly, like, what's the bar that you're trying to beat? Because ultimately, we're not here to try and make everything NSA safe, right? Right. You know, that is a very, very high bar. Yeah. But I don't want a 15-year-old kid in his bedroom cracking into my website. And as professionals with some experience, we should be able to defend against that. That's very fair. In the worst case scenario, I'd have to write a real joke. (laughs) 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 All right, Troy, thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a boy. Life is hard.